Psalm 109 tonight. Sound engineers measure hearing by DBSPLs, which is decibel sound pressure levels. A jet aircraft comes in at 140 decibels or decibel sound pressure levels. The threshold of ear pain is at 130, so there you go. The threshold of ear discomfort is at 120. So at 120 decibels, you're starting to... Uh, that's, that's getting up there. 130, you are actually feeling pain. A vacuum cleaner is 70. The average home decibel level on an average day is 50. My home this summer has been more like 140. But again, that's just my house. A quiet library would measure at about 40 decibel sound pressure levels. A quiet bedroom at night, about 30. Rustling leaves in the distance measure around 10 decibel sound pressure levels. And the threshold of hearing is right at zero. You hit zero and you're not hearing. How about God answering prayer? And what decibel sound pressure level does God answer prayer? Psalm 109 verse 1 begins, O God of my praise, do not be silent. Have you ever prayed that prayer before? Don't be silent with this one, Lord. Please let me hear you, Lord. Give me direction in this, Lord. Give me understanding. Or like many of us have prayed at some point in our life, Lord, I just want to hear your voice. Can I just hear your voice? The plea to be heard. Better still, to be answered, O oh God of my praise, do not be silent. Psalm 4, verse 1, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Psalm 102, verse 2, Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me, and in the day when I call, answer me quickly. You see, this conversation is very much a part of a walk of faith. And it's called out in the Scriptures from beginning to end that He speaks and and we hear and we speak and He hears. But there are a lot of people sitting there at that decibel sound pressure level of zero going, I'm not hearing anything. So am I missing something? In my experience, if you cry out to God, He always answers. He always answers. Sometimes it does come in below zero decibel sound pressure levels. Sometimes his answer is inaudible. But he's the God who says, Psalm 91, 15, he will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. Same God who said, Isaiah 65, 24, it will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they're still speaking, I will hear. And so tonight, as we come to the last few Savior Psalms, we have two more after this. We'll do Psalm 110 on Sunday, Psalm 118 next Wednesday night. And then we're going to be done with this Selah. But as we come to this, we recognize that sometimes, and in these Savior Psalms, we've heard sometimes His voice is blaring. Very loud, very clearly the Lord's speaking. And maybe you have had that experience in your life where undeniably God has spoken to you, has said something to you. 
Some would say audibly, I would be one of those. I haven't heard God audibly many times in my life, but a few. We're here tonight because I heard God audibly. Sometimes He's blaring loud and sometimes barely a whisper. The thing is, whether He's blaring or barely a whisper, we've got to hear Him with our spirits. We've got to tune our spirits to hear His voice. Jesus said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation 2.7. Revelation 13, along about verse 8, I believe, He says, He who has an ear, let him hear. So even if you're not in the Spirit, listen up. If you've got an ear, just one, listen. Psalm 109 comes in loudly. This is the seventh of eight imprecatory psalms. We've seen one before in the Savior Psalms, an imprecatory psalm, a cursing psalm. A psalm of vilification. And these are tough in the book of praises when we come across these imprecatory psalms because cursing can run at painfully high decibel levels. Cursing can hurt the ears. And when you run across cursing, especially in the Bible, you better be sure who's talking, who they're talking to, what they're talking about. We must not ascribe these to the wrong individual. We need to listen very carefully tonight so that we can avoid putting words in Jesus' mouth that don't belong there. But also that we can hear His voice and what He is clearly saying. Charles Spurgeon, I know I quote him a lot, but you might want to pick this up if you are enjoying our study in the Psalms, even this brief study with a handful of the Psalms. The Treasury of David, Volumes 1, 2, and 3 by Spurgeon is fantastic. Every library, in my opinion, ought to have those three volumes, Treasury of David by Charles Spurgeon. He wrote in Volume 2, Truly this, speaking of Psalm 109, is one of the hard places of Scripture. A passage which the soul trembles to read. Side note, that's why it wasn't in my original list of Savior Psalms. Because I didn't want to do it. I read it. I didn't like what I heard. So I thought, well, Lord, there are plenty of other good Savior Psalms. No, you've got to do this one. Psalm 109, a passage which the soul trembles to read. Spurgeon goes on and says, To ascribe its bitter denunciations to our Lord in the hour of His sufferings is more than we dare to do. These are not consistent with the silent Lamb of God who opened not His mouth when led to the slaughter. Oh, it may seem very pious to put such words into His mouth. We hope it is our piety which prevents us from doing so. I like that. Sometimes being right before God, sometimes holiness demands that we hold our tongue. Demands that we don't go down a road that the Scripture doesn't imply. Well, Psalm 109 in its heading says this is for the choir director, a Psalm of David. For the choir director, but it's an imprecatory Psalm. (laughs) Sing it, choir. Before the people, sing the curses. Before God, sing it out. I mean, we Christians are not used to singing songs like this. Truly. Can you imagine? Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children wander and beg. We don't sing songs that way. (laughs) 
Let the creditor seize all that he has. Praise the Lord. Let the strangers plunder the product of his labor. We don't do that. And yet this is for the choir director. Teach it to the choir. Have them sing it in the temple. This made the Billboard Top 150 songs. This is in the list. Sing this one out. Why don't we sing more cursing songs? <laughs> because we've been told not to. Because Jesus said in Luke 6.27, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. But you come to a psalm like this, which is a psalm of cursing, and you got to ask, why would anyone put such a judgmental jingle into the Jerusalem songbook or the church hymnal? We used to sing one of the hymns we sang when I was a kid growing up, and we just all cringed at it. Have you ever sung the song, Jesus is coming soon? Morning or night or noon? Many will meet their doom. <laughs> Trumpets will sound. I would sit there in church and I'd just look around at people. Many will meet their doom. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? That's not what we're looking forward to. Silently, we changed the word to many will meet their groom. I like that better. Psalms of, of cursing. Songs that, that hammer like this. Well, we're going to see why it's here. Furthermore, we will understand why this must be considered among the Savior Psalms. Psalms that speak of, or about, or are spoken by our Savior Jesus. We're going to look at this in three parts tonight. I'm going to take my time to work our way through it. Part one is the prayer of the accused. The prayer of the accused, first five verses. Part two... I'll repeat this for you, is the judgment of the accuser. The judgment of the accuser, verses 6 through 19. And finally, it will end with the salvation of the afflicted, verses 20 through 31. Sounds joyful, doesn't it? After last week's psalm of gladness, we're going to read about the prayer of the accused, verses 1 through 5. The judgment of the accuser, verses 6 through 19. And the salvation of the afflicted, verses 20 through 31. But I hope and pray you walk out of here encouraged. We begin with the prayer of the accused. Verse 1. O oh God of my praise. Okay, stop right there. Those five words. O oh God of my praise. This is the only time, and this is why we have to pause, it's the only time in the entire book of Psalms that that phrase is used. That surprised me, because I've heard the phrase, we've sung the phrase in a song or two, that's a great phrase. David only uses it here, O God of my praise. Only time the Lord is addressed this way, and what's interesting to me is it's multifaceted in its meaning. Oh, God of my praise. You see, He is the God of my praise. That is, He's the focus of my praise. He's the God to whom I lift up my praise. Oh, God of my praise. But He's also the God who presides over my praise. Oh, God of my praise. He commands my praise. He, he directs my praise. He gives faith to it. He's the God of my praise. As Jesus said, God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. John 4.24 And I absolutely believe we need a little help from the Spirit of the Lord to worship Him. 
to praise Him. So He's God over my praise. Directs it, commands it, has authority over it, even as He is the God of my praise, the God that I worship, and the focus of my praise. He's also the God of my praise. That is, praises I receive. And by the way, you can make a good case that that's what David's saying here. O God of my praise. O God of the honor that comes my way. The praises that are offered to me. You're God of that. You're God over that. O God of any time someone has something nice to say to me, about me. Be God over that. Be the God of my praise. I need that. Otherwise, my praise becomes my pride. I need a God over any praise that's offered to me. I love the old Rich Millen song, Hold Me, Jesus. Hold me, Jesus, he says in the chorus, because I'm shaken like a leaf. You have been king of my glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? I've always honed in on the won't you be my prince of peace because that's the place my heart wants to go. But then I realized, thinking about it today, you have been king of my glory. Is he king of your glory? Is he the God of your praise? When someone comes along and has something good to say about you, do you find yourself ducking to let the praise go straight to the Father or are you just receiving it in? Yeah, baby. Praise me. Keep on praising me. See, the praise of others to me so easily stokes human pride. And it becomes a thing that can be quite dangerous. We ran across this verse. I love this verse. Proverbs 27 21. The crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold, and each is tested by the praise accorded to him. Now, we've studied testing in the Bible before. We've looked at the crucible before. We've thought about times where we are being uh, tested like gold in a furnace. And we think of the furnace being hot and fiery. We think about afflictions and trials and challenges. We go through those and that purifies us. But the writer of Proverbs says, no, you're tested by the praise that's given to you. Someone comes along with a kind word for you or for what you've done. Especially things you've done in the name of the Lord. Someone says, hey, good job with that. And that is a crucible. That is a furnace you go into. Sometimes the proving fire is not hard times, it's the praise of others. Oh God of my praise. Be God over my praise. By the way, He's also God of the praise I offer to other people. Oh God of my praise, as I hand out praise, as I hand out honor, as I speak blessing into other people's lives, I want Him to be God over that. Because sometimes... Not only does he keep me from pride, but he keeps me from politics. Am I praising because I'm politicking? Am I just buttering someone up? Am I licking a boot or two? Am I putting butter on a boot? See, that's, think about our euphemisms. <laughs> Sorry, I, I don't know. That's just weird. No, I'm talking about flattery for advantage. Someone who comes along and says all oh, these great things about about you and they're just flattering and I could fall into that trap man I I want something out of this person so I'm going to treat them extra nice oh God of my praise (laughs) be an authority over that 
Romans 16, 17 says, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. You know what that person needs? A God of their praise. They need God to take authority over their use of flattery. And again, politicking. 1 Thessalonians 2.5, Paul says, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. And Paul says both sides of that. He is God of my praise. We didn't come along flattering, nor did we receive praise from you as if we earned it or deserved it. Oh God of my praise, where God is concerned, I need a God who presides over praises, whether they're from me, or to me, or through me, for Him, about Him. Oh God of my praise. Now, what's truly ironic to me is as the psalm begins, you might not know this in the first verse, but as you go forward, you start to realize David calls Him God of my praise in a psalm where the accusations begin to fly. Where the criticism is coming. And he begins with the God of my praise. Oh, God of my praise, do not be silent. For they have opened the wicked and deceitful mouth against me. They have spoken against me with a lion tongue. I'm I'm not pointing over at John and Debbie. I'm just not saying they. Sorry, you two. They, no, now I'm pointing toward Larry. For they, there we go. Let's go that way. They have spoken against me. Verse 3, they have surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without cause. Now this is probably the second psalm that's tied to the coup of Absalom. So if you want a historical setting for it, Psalm of David, and he is absolutely being maligned and cursed, challenged, spoken down to, criticized. Psalm 41 we already looked at. We called that the Psalm of the Savior betrayed. And that was one of these Savior Psalms. And that's tied to the coup of Absalom. And Ahithophel, remember Ahithophel, David's counselor, who switched sides and went with Absalom and counseled Absalom how to undermine David. And at that time, it wasn't just Absalom, it wasn't just Ahithophel. But if you read it, Psalm 16, or 2 Samuel 16 and 17, what you discover is all kinds of people were turning against David. People he loved. People he shepherded as a king. People he fought for were now turning to Absalom and he's driven out of Jerusalem and it's a horrible scene. And we believe Psalm 41 and Psalm 109 both may have been written at that time. So why aren't they together? Why isn't Psalm 109 Psalm 42? I mean, if they're both issues of the Absalom coup, why not Psalm 41 and 42, the the two-part psalms about that time in David's life? Why is it tucked way over here in Psalm 109, which, by the way, is in the fifth book of the psalms? The Deuteronomic psalms, that is, they line up with the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book in Torah. Remember I told you that? Five books of Torah, five books in the Psalms, and the Psalms are organized and and have something to do with each of those five books or the themes of the five books of Torah. So we're in the last book, and this Psalm's tucked over here, whereas Psalm 41 is tucked in the first book. 
Well, why is that? Why is it here? And it may be, it may be, whether David intended it prophetically this way or not, that the Jewish compilers of the Psalms recognized that the whole kingdom needed to sing this song. Maybe that's why David wrote it for the choir director and said, have everybody sing it, because everybody needs to. Because a day is coming when all of those in Israel need to be able to sing Psalm 109. Who are we talking about? The Jewish exiles. Because the exiles, having been exiled in Babylon 70 years, come back into the land. First, under Ezra's rule leadership anyway, they begin to rebuild the temple. Then, then comes Nehemiah to help build the wall. And during both of those, during that whole season, Daniel prophesied it would be a difficult season. They would be under great duress as they rebuilt the wall and and rebuilt the temple and rebuilt Jerusalem. We see that the Jewish people at that time, the exiles, as they tried to come back and restore their land, were surrounded by hate speech. Real hate speech. We see in Ezra chapter 4 verse 4, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, frightened them from building the temple, and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel. And Nehemiah, and I'll just read this to you real quickly, Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 4, Nehemiah says, Hear, O Lord our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in the land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. See, that's an imprecatory prayer. Where Nehemiah is praying curses against those who are trying to undermine the work of God and His people. Nehemiah writes, So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls in Jerusalem went on, and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed, note this, we prayed to our God... And because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. Thus in Judah it was said, The strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish. And we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall, our enemies. They said, We will not know. They will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to their work. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, They will come up against us from every place where you may turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people and families with their swords, spears, and bows. When I saw their fear, I rose and I spoke to the nobles and officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord, remember the Lord is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. You may remember this. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work, while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bulls, and the breastplates, and the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. And those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other hand holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. All this is to point out that this psalm deals with accusations, criticisms, and the judgment of the wicked poured out to the psalmist. 
Or in this case, to the choir. Psalm 109 would have been a good song for the exiles to sing as their enemies were coming against them, the wicked are judging them, whether it's just one wicked person or the many, they take their counsel against the Lord. Psalm 109 speaks to that. Oh God of my praise, do not be silent. In return, verse 4, for my love, they act as my accusers. But I am in prayer. Thus they have repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. And every choir ought to be required to sing these three words. Va ani tefillah. Va ani tefillah. But I pray. That is the last three words in Hebrew of verse 4. Your Bible may read, but I am in prayer. It is literally, but I pray. They accuse, but I pray. They curse, but I pray. They condemn, va, ani, tefillah. They can do or say whatever they want, but I pray. And when they turn against you, you turn to the Lord. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And you know, when someone's coming at me, when I'm being criticized, when I'm being undermined, I know it's shocking, but it happens. (laughs) Prayer always helps me feel better. It calms my soul. It quiets my spirit. But you know, it is so much bigger than that. See, they do studies where they say, yeah, people who pray tend to be more even-tempered, or people who pray tend to live longer, or there's something to prayer and meditation, and of course they add, add in moments of silence, which by the way, do nothing for you. A moment of silence, you know what a moment of silence is? Silence. There's nothing there. But to pray... It's more than the comfort you feel in the moment. It's more than calming your beating heart. Listen, what is the natural human response to being attacked? Fight back. Right? You come at me, you get my back up, I become defensive, protect the flesh, defend the skin. You're going to rail at me, I'm going to rail right back at you. That's the natural Human response. The thing is, responding flesh to flesh immediately sets me at a disadvantage. If someone comes at me on the attack and I respond in my flesh or even in my soul, man, I am at a disadvantage. Oh, not necessarily to the attacker, but to the enemy. I'm immediately undermined. Paul said it clearly, 2 Corinthians 10.3, For we, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Someone comes at you, you pray. Someone's on the attack, but I pray. It is the most powerful response we have to any attack, whether spiritual or emotional or physical. Any attack that comes, but I pray. Why? Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Ephesians 6.12 
but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And if we don't pray, if we respond in the flesh or in the soul, we lose. And we don't stop and pray and give it to the Father who has the spiritual power and authority to take care of the situation. We are undermined. We are immediately at a disadvantage. Satan always gets the upper hand when we respond in the flesh. And that's why this psalm is so powerful to me. I'm under attack. They're coming at me. They've surrounded me with words of hatred. The deceitful and wicked mouth is against me. But I pray. And that is always the right answer. But I pray. And when I pray, it's no longer my battle. It's His. He has now entered the fray and I just step back and let dad go to work. I've shared before, I know, because it's just it's imprinted on my brain from my childhood, being six, seven, eight years old, somewhere around there, a little kid standing in my front yard and, and some bullies from the neighborhood, three or four of them were standing on the sidewalk and they were calling down curses and they were taunting me and, and I was getting really worried and upset and, and I wanted to go and fight them, but I knew I'd, I'd have the tar beaten out of me. And then my dad walked out the front door. What's going on, boys? Yeah, what's going on, boys? Man, I was courageous instantly. As my dad standing six feet two, and I'm, you know, all of four feet two. And they all left, and man, see, call dad in. Call upon the father. Let him take up the charge. Let him be the shield and the defense. Let him fight. Advantage goes to those who go to the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 38, You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And those would be nice, kind of spiritual words, you know, Bible study words. If it weren't for the fact that Jesus didn't just speak them, he lived them. Someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. Psalm 50 verse 6 tells us, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? He says, let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? It's great because Isaiah, in prophesying right there, and he's prophesying of Jesus, He gets right out to the point where he says, who will contend? Let's stand up. Okay, you want to fight? Bring it on. And the second the fight's about to start, he starts to pray. He gives it to the Lord. I'm not going to fight you. Beautiful thing about prayer is when someone comes against you and you take it to God in prayer, they end up fighting the Lord. That's not a battle you want to be in. The ultimate example of trusting self-sacrifice on the part of Jesus we see when He went to the cross in prayer. And Peter said in 1 Peter 2.23, while being reviled, He did not revile in return. 
While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. But I pray. I pray. I will not engage in the flesh. This is the attitude. This is the song. This is what the choir needs to sing. This is what the church needs to sing. We will not engage this world in the flesh. But we will pray. And we will stand behind our Father. See, that's the prayer of the accused. That's the prayer of the attacked. And David begins Psalm 109 with that very prayer. And he's going to end it the same way. Kind of like bread on a sandwich. But in the middle comes, number two, the judgment of the accuser. The judgment of the accuser. Now, by the way, I'll say this. It is so heavy-handed, I'm going to ask you to consider as we go through this, who's speaking here? Who's actually doing the talking? Watch this. In verse 6, appoint a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children wander about and beg. Let them seek sustenance far from their ruined homes. Let the creditor seize all that he has and let strangers plunder the product of his labor. Let there be none to extend loving kindness to him nor any to be gracious to his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off. In a following generation, let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and do not let his sin, the sin of his mother, be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off their memory from the earth, because he did not remember to show loving kindness, but persecuted the afflicted and needy man and the despondent in heart to put them to death. Yeah, get him. Wipe him out, Lord. Take him down. Imprecation. Curse. This section is brilliant. Verses 6 through 19. Listen, they are a quote, not of David, but, and by the way, not by the implications of the inspiration, not of Christ. This prayer is a quote. David is quoting his own accusers. He's taking what they have said about him and he's turning it right around. Let their words be on their heads. He's not making this stuff up. And David, who is a man after God's own heart, isn't just coming up with this stuff in his spirit. He turns their words, their accusations against them. He takes their allegations and contentions and imprecations and labels them return to sender. This is what they're saying about me, Lord. May it fall on them. That's what David's saying. And so the quote of verses 6 through 19 are words, again, that that are spoken by his accusers against David. Even in verse 17, they're saying, He also loved cursing, so it came to him. And he did not light in blessing, so it was far from him. But he clothed himself with cursing as with his garment, and it entered into his body like water, like oil into his bones. Let it be to him as a garment with which he covers himself, and for a belt with which he constantly girds himself. Cursing, cursing, cursing. Let it be that way to King David, they said. As usual, what David does with all of this cursing is he lays it at God's righteous feet. 
So he's not just saying, they curse me, curse them, Lord. He's saying, here are the curses. Let it be done to them. Father, I won't do it, but I'm handing it to you. This is what they said of me. I'm handing it to you to take care of. These harsh words would be very difficult to sing otherwise. And there are those who come along and say that these words are the words of Jesus cursing people from the cross. No, that's not the heart of the Father. That is certainly not the heart of our Savior. But we can sing these words. The choir could sing these words because they are a direct quote of those who are attacking. Practically, it's a song for the choir. Why? Because it teaches worshipers to set every threat before the Lord. To take every threat that has been launched or fired at them or at us, and we set it before the Lord. We lay it out before Him. And then we trust His flawless judgment with it. Let Him return the cursing on the curser, if He so judges it to be right. So practically, it works that way. Prophetically, Prophetically speaking, verses 6-19 through seem to come right out of the mouth of another accuser, a specific one. Keep your finger here and turn all the way over to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. In verse 12, you can just keep turning there, but I'll bring you into this. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, Mount of Olives which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away, which is a couple of miles. I mean, they're just up on all of it, and they just cross the Kidron Valley. They come back into Jerusalem. And when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and, and it's the first time 11 are listed Instead of 12. These are all with one mind, and they continually devoted themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers, they've now come along. And verse 15, at this time Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together, and said, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, if you're among this group and Peter says this, you're like, whoa, okay, this is a word. This is a word from the Lord. He's about to bring in something David said is prophetic of Judas. What? Think about that. When we apply prophecy to something that's current, we all get excited. It's like, whoa, we, we, we see it being fulfilled in front of us. And so Peter's about to bring this and the group gathered around, no doubt, are hanging on every word. They're listening close. He says, for he, speaking of of Judas, was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. And then as a side, Luke writes, this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. It's one of my favorite verses. It's a very comforting and, and encouraging verse. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language that field was called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. And there's another name for that. The Valley of Hinnom, or Gehenna, is the field of blood. Where Judas fell was in the Hinnom Valley that Jesus used as an example of nothing other than hell. For it is written in the book of Psalms. Okay, here it comes. He's, he's about to show us the prophecy. 
Let his homestead be made desolate, Psalm 69, 25, and let no one dwell in it. And let another man take his office, Psalm 109, verse 8. What Peter declares by the Holy Spirit at this point as they're gathered in Jerusalem, and yes, he did have the Spirit. Remember in John chapter 20, Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Spirit. So while the Holy Spirit hadn't come on to them in terms of a baptism as as a flowing upon them, as we would see in Acts chapter 2, Peter, filled by the Spirit, is now speaking prophecy, and he's saying, Psalm 109, verse 8, speaks of Judas in the context of his betrayal of Jesus, which tells us that Psalm 109, Jesus is the accused. Jesus is the attacked. That it is the Spirit of Jesus speaking through David and pinning the psalm and laying it out. Oh, man. Let another man take his office. Judas Iscariot's office was empty. As the betrayer, as the accuser. Note that he's an accuser. He's not just a betrayer. It's not just that he went and turned Jesus in. He spoke ill of him. He directed them to him saying, this is the guy. Yeah, yes, that Jesus. David's accusers were saying, let another man take his office. That is the office of king. Judas. Man, I wonder if Judas didn't think the same thing from time to time as he followed Jesus. Man, I wish someone else would step up and take his office. Why would Judas think that? Well, Because Jesus wasn't doing what Judas wanted. What did Judas want? Well, he probably, for one thing, wanted someone who'd stand up to the Romans and, and bring the kingdom and fight them off. Maybe, perhaps, skin for skin. I think more likely Judas was getting frustrated because there was a lot of good money to be made off this guy's power. And the money wasn't being made. We're still sleeping out under the stars. We still have a group of women financing this ministry. What is up? We could make some good dough here. Why would you say that about Judas? Oh, it's clear. It's clear in the Scriptures. And with his office empty, what Peter is saying in Acts chapter 1 is it's time to fill the vacancy. I wonder if Peter remembered Jesus saying in Mark 14.21, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Of course, Peter probably didn't hear this Maybe he did, but Jesus prayed in John 17, 12, that high priestly prayer on the night of his betrayal, I guarded them and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, the son of waste, Judas, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Now in Acts chapter 1, not to leave you hanging, but the filling of Judas' place by Matthias, or perhaps by Paul, is a story for another time. And that's what they were doing there. And yet Peter draws off of Psalm 109 to say, let his vacancy be filled or let another take his office. Back in Psalm 109. Watch this closely. Psalm 109 verse 4. In return for my love, they acted as my accusers, but I pray. Thus they have repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. That's exactly what the world did with Jesus. For his love, he got a cross. For his kindness, he got hatred. This is what his own people did. 
John chapter 1 tells us the world didn't even recognize him. His own people did not receive him. This is what Judas did. And you know what's interesting about Judas? Jesus never showed him anything less than love. And what did he get for it? Betrayal. He never gave Judas anything less than his full love. In fact, John 13 tells us the full extent of his love. He loved him to the end. All the apostles. But including Judas, it still shocks me that on the night of his betrayal, Jesus washed the feet of the betrayer before he left the room. Jesus showed nothing but love, even in the moment of his betrayal. Do you realize this? They're in the garden. Jesus has come out of of difficult prayer, blood-sweating prayer. And as he stands there surrounded by Peter, James, John, the apostles, here comes Judas and a whole Roman guard. And Matthew chapter 26, verse 49 says, Immediately Jesus went, uh, Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi! And kissed him. And Jesus said to him, What's the matter with you, jerk? What do you think you're doing? I know what you're... No. Jesus said, Friend. Friend. In the moment of betrayal, friend, he called him. Do what you've come to do. And they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized Him. We've talked about Judas before. Kind of a conundrum. You know, people are wondering, but was, was Judas set up? Was he just born to betray? That's not really fair. Or, or, or maybe, he was, maybe he was just trying to push Jesus along. That's been a theory that's been floated. That, that he wasn't betraying him, he turned him in so that Jesus would do something. Come on, let's move the kingdom forward. Jesus needs a little push. So maybe that was his intention, but it all went wrong. And that's not what the Bible tells us about Judas. Let's be clear. John 6, verse 70. Jesus said that early on in his ministry, did not I myself choose you the twelve, and one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. He only called two of the apostles devil. (laughs) Judas and Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said to Peter. If you're not thinking like God, you're thinking like man. So the two of them both got called devil, basically. But Judas followed through. Peter denied, yeah, fell apart, came back. John 12, verse 4 tells us Judas was intending to betray him. For a long time, this was the plan. John 12, verse 6, he was a thief, and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. So what we realize about Judas is Jesus knew early on in ministry, this guy's the betrayer. And during that whole time, he's ripping off the finances and during that time, he's intending to betray Jesus anyway. And you got to say, Jesus, why did you choose Judas at all? And that's where some say, well, he was predestined to betray. Wrong. He chose to betray. So why did Jesus choose Judas? I believe because he was giving Judas his only chance at salvation. I'm going to have this one as close to me as possible if only to change his mind. Bring him near, show him love, give him all the grace I've got, but in the end, 
Judas still betrayed. Jesus, you could say he reached down to the darkest place of human denial and betrayal and accusation to offer the hand of friendship and grace, and Peter took it. Peter took it. Received forgiveness and restoration. But Judas, Acts chapter 1, verse 25 tells us, he turned aside to go to his own place. Where's that? Hell. Gehenna. The Hinnom Valley, the place of his hanging and death, but Judas chose. Psalm 109, verse 6 says, note this, appoint a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. And those were the accusers saying that of David. And so David's just turning it right around. But guess what? An accuser did stand at Judas's right hand. The word accuser in the Hebrew there, anyone know what it is? Satan. The Hebrew word for accuser is Satan. That's where we get the name. So the verse reads, and let Satan stand at his right hand. That's exactly what took place. John 13, 27, after the morsel, Satan then entered into Judas. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Or or look at verse 14, Psalm 109. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord and do not let the sin of his mother be blotted out. And they said that about David. Remember, David's returning. The curse is spoken against him. And they said that. Why would they say, do not let the sin of his mother be blotted out? Because there was a little something in the background there. You won't find it in the Bible. But the old rabbis say this was an issue for David. What was? Illegitimacy. That there were those who believed that David was an illegitimate child. Ruth was his grandma, but Ruth was a Moabite. And so you can look this up if you're interested in this. The Babylonian Talmud tells the story in Tractate Baba Bathro 91. (laughs) David's mother is unnamed in the Bible, but the Babylonian Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, gives her a name, says she was named Nitzavet. Nitzavet bat Adiel. Nitzavet, daughter of Adiel. Nitzavet was wife to Jesse. And again, through Jewish oral tradition that eventually got written down in Talmud, the stories told about Nitzavet and, and how Jesse was starting to feel like, wow, because Grandma was a Moabitess and this is the line and we need some legitimacy here. And so he quietly uh, put her aside, divorced her, and then set it up to sleep with her maidservant so that he could have a child that was true, full Jew. And the maidservant told Nitzavet, and that night, Nitzavet slipped in instead of the maidservant. And she got pregnant. And so David was actually born of his mother and father. But Jesse couldn't say that because of what had taken place. And Nitzavet held her tongue because of what had taken place. And so that there was this suggestion there. And I don't know if this is true. This is in the Babylonian Talmud. So it could be. It's Jewish tradition. That it was thought for a long time, all the way up to his anointing, that David was an illegitimate child. It would fit. Do not let the sin of his mother be blotted out. It would fit. Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me, David said. But more importantly, what was said about Jesus and his mother? Virgin birth, 
nice one. Come on, Jesus. Come on, Mary. Really? Spontaneous pregnancy. Uh Uh-huh. And you kind of wonder if Judas didn't think that. When it came up, and you know it did, in the ministry. Oh man, we we gotta we gotta take care of that one. We can't that, let that get out. Oh man, that's that's embarrassing. Is that true? Well, we know it was spoken about Jesus. What about verse seventeen? He also loved cursing, so it came to him, and he did not delight in blessing, so it was far from him. They tried to say that about David. But he clothed himself with cursing as with his garment and entered into his body. It entered into his body like water and like oil into his bones. And the reality is, those who bring a curse, that does happen. That does take place. The one who curses, the one who accuses, the one who criticizes others. First of all, it's rarely a spur-of-the-moment thing. Usually the critic, the critical person is critical a lot. Usually the one who curses, curses a lot. The accuser accuses all the time. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, the accuser of our brethren accuses them before our God day and night. And that's something to be aware of. You probably know this, but those who are accusatory tend to be pretty accusatory in nature. Those who are critical tend to always be critical. Always looking for what's wrong with you or with someone else. Always bringing up the negative. Be careful when someone comes along to you with flattery, but they speak negatively of other people. They will speak negatively about you. And here we have such a picture that it entered into his body like water and like oil into his bones. That's what cursing does. It it seeps in deep. And I truly wonder how often Judas cursed under his breath. And Jesus knew it. Knew what was going on. The problem with fleshly accusation and contentions is they take over the contentious. It's not just the person criticized that gets harmed, it's the critic who begins to harm themselves mentally. And physically and finally spiritually, like water getting into the body and oil to the bones. If you wear contention, it'll wear you out. And what did Jesus say about such words? He said, Matthew twelve thirty six. I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. How am I justified by my words when I say Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior? I believe that He is the Christ. I believe in His resurrection. I believe He came and died at Calvary for my sin. By my words, I will be justified. But by our words, we are condemned if our words don't speak faith in Jesus. Well, verse 20 finally returns us to the actual prayer of David. Let this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord and of those who speak evil against my soul. Now note that he says, from the Lord. I'm handing this kit and caboodle, I'm handing it over to God. All these curses, all these negative things, all this stuff spewed on me, I'm handing it over to God. 
Let him respond. Let him deal with it. Let this be from the Lord and not from me. And Paul says in Romans 12, 19, never take your own revenge. But leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy's hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. That's always cracked me up. You, know, you read that, hey, be kind, because by being kind, <laughs> you're going you're gonna to dump fire on their brains. Isn't that contrary to honest kindness? See, Paul's not saying, be kind and you'll burn them. <laughs> but often the result of kindness, especially when given in exchange for cruelty, is that the enemy or the accuser ends up scratching their own feverish noggins. It's upsetting. It, 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 it doesn't say, why, why are you being so kind to me? Do not be overcome by evil, Paul wrote, but overcome evil with good, Romans twelve twenty one. And where you have been unjustly treated, you have two choices. You can fight back or you can pray. You can stand up for yourself even if you've been unjustly accused or you can hand it to the Lord. I say don't fight it. In fact, I have a phrase, take the downside. In any squabble, in any argument, if you try to get the upper hand, you will lose. Take the downside. Hand it to the Lord. Pray. Let Him solve the issue. And don't you go out there fighting to get your standing. From the Lord. Verse 21, But you, O God, the Lord, deal with me. It adds deal kindly, but the word kindly is not there. O God, the Lord, deal with me for your name's sake. Because your loving kindness is good, deliver me. For I am afflicted and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. The word wounded is pierced. Truly, Jesus' heart was pierced within him. So interesting that he says, Lord, deal with me for your name's sake. He says, and again, think of David writing, I'm afflicted and I'm needy. Let me just tell you something David wasn't needy financially. He says, I'm needy here. Do you know how much money David had? Do you know how wealthy David, by the time he's writing this psalm, how set up he is for life financially? Let me give you an example. Anyone know what he gave Solomon as a gift for the building of the Jerusalem temple? First Chronicles 29 verse 3 says, In my delight in the house of my God, the treasure I have of gold and silver I give to the house of my God, over and above all that I have already provided for the holy temple, namely, 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, which was the purest, best, most expensive gold. And 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the building. Let me give that that to you in in today's understanding. 3,000 talents of gold. 3,000 talents is 110 tons. 110 tons of gold. This was David's offering for the temple. 7,000 talents of silver. 260 tons of silver. Based on this week's gold index. I looked it up. It's right now, gold is running at about $1,506 an ounce. So do the math. 
32,000 ounces in a ton means that for one ton of gold would be worth $48,192,000. One ton. David gave 110, which amounts to over $5.3 billion. David was not needy. (laughs) David was set up financially. He had a massive retirement. You know what David knew? He knew that you can be financially self-sufficient and your assets secure and you're holding strong and you could still be afflicted and needy. As he was. You can have everything financially and be absolutely impoverished before God. There is only one thing that brings true security. One thing alone and that's the grace of God. Which is why he says it here. Deal with me for your namesake because of your chesed, your loving kindness, your grace. It's good. Deliver me. It's your grace, Lord. David said, that's what I need. I don't need all this other. I need your grace. Even Jesus, the God-man, with all the resources of heaven, invested his life in the hands of God. God's goodness. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. David was afflicted and needy. He needed the grace of God. Jesus was afflicted and needy and pierced in His heart. I am passing like a shadow when it lengthens, verse 23. I am shaken off like the locust. My knees are weak from fasting. My flesh has grown lean without fatness. I also have become a a reproach to them. And when they see me, they wag their head. That is exactly what took place at Calvary. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your grace. Your loving kindness. This is amazing insight for the accused. For the attacked. Listen. Deliver me, he says, not because I'm innocent. Deliver me because your loving kindness is good. Verse 21. Save me according to your loving kindness. Verse 26. According to your grace. Again, not because I deserve it and not because I'm an innocent man of their accusations. Hey, if someone comes along accusing you and you're guilty of the accusation... You still pray to the Lord, save me from this, deliver me by your grace. Not by my goodness. Because actually, I may not even be guilty of what they're accusing me of, but I'm guilty of something. Bring it on. I'm sure what my accuser is saying, there's got to be some truth in there. Deliver me anyway, Lord, because you are good and by your grace. For the law was given through Moses, John 1.18, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And you know what's the most amazing thing to me is the one person in all history who deserved grace took the accusations and took all the wrath of God instead. Jesus did not deserve these imprecations. He did not deserve to be cursed. I do. But by the grace of God, I am saved. Verse 27. And let them know that this is your hand. You, Lord, have done it. What has He done? Saved by grace. 
delivered by His loving kindness. Let my enemies know that's what's going on here. That I'm delivered from their accusations because you are a God of all grace. Because you're a God of loving kindness. You have done it. Verse 28, let them curse, but you bless. And when they arise, they will be ashamed, but your servant shall be glad. Hey, the accuser curses. The Lord blesses. And he'll be ashamed. The accuser who comes at you will be ashamed. Let God deal with that. Those who curse and shame other people will be cursed and shamed themselves. What goes around comes around. But God blesses. Servant of the Lord. Your servant shall be glad. And by the way, if you want to curse your enemy, here's the best way to do it. Just be blessed as a servant of God. And God will bless and the enemy will be cursed. Just live under God's care. You know, I have it in my mind, I call it the game of Outlast. Someone comes along and says, oh, you're this or you're that. And you're like, but I'm not. Oh, yeah, you are. Okay. The truth will out. Let God be your shield. When we first started the bridge, I don't know if some of you know this, some of you may know this, but when we first started, there were some accusations made against me. There were things that were said. Some things were spread out there in the community. Oh, he split a church. I didn't. Oh, he stole from a church. That was actually said. I didn't. Oh, he took a bunch of people. I didn't. But it was out there. Never forget meeting with a pastor who didn't even know me. And he starts laying this out. for. Well, I heard you did this, this, and this. And I'm going, unjustly accused. I remember going home and talking to Cheryl. What do we do? What do I do with this? I'm so thankful that we started in Genesis because long about that time we were in Genesis 15 where God said to Abram, do not fear, Abram. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. And what God told me then, 15 years ago, was Rick, just put your head down and do what I tell you to do. Just fly under the radar. I'll take care of it. One of those who accused me came up to me a couple of years after the bridge began and said, you know what? I was wrong. Because I see what God has done. He'll take care of it. His great, by the way, I didn't deserve it because everything that I was accused of, I probably had done at some point in my life. Yeah, I'm sure I did. Not then. But God is the shield. He is the one who blesses. And I love this. Your servant shall be glad. Your servant. The gladness of the servant of the Lord Isaiah 65, verse 13. Check this out. Behold, my servants will eat. Well, that makes me glad. But you will be hungry. Behold, my servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. Behold, my servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. Behold, my servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart, but you will cry out with a heavy heart, and you will wail with a broken spirit. Who's that? Those who come against the Lord. Those who set themselves against God or against His people. You will leave your name a curse to my chosen ones and the Lord God will slay you. But my servants will be called by another name. We get a new name. By the way, you want to know what what the servants of the Lord will be called? Sons. Sons had the greatest conversation and I don't want to uncover a brother Les knows who I'm talking about we had a conversation the other day 
Just talking about being a servant of the Lord. What it meant to be a servant of the Lord. And you know what? This brother of mine, and I'm going to say it to all of you. Some of us need to receive our sonship. Because some of us are still trying to be servants. Some of us are the prodigal who returned home just thinking, if I can just be a servant in the house, Father, can I just be a servant? I'll just be a servant. I'll be fine being a servant. Meanwhile, God's getting the robe and the ring and the shoes and He's calling for the fatted calf to be slain. And He's saying, it's party time. I just want to be a servant. My son's home. And some of you are still saying, can I be a servant? Listen. Only in sonship is the servant filled with true gladness. Your gladness is waiting for you to receive it. Be a son. Be a daughter. Stop trying to be a servant. Oh, if I work hard enough, I can prove myself in the house of my God. Stop it. Go do that in another church. (laughs) No, no. Stay here and do that. We need some help with things. But, But... Be a son. You have an inheritance. That's where our gladness comes in. The servant shall be glad. Why? Because we're sons. In the household of God. Verse 29. Let my accusers be clothed with dishonor and let them cover themselves with their own shame as with a robe. By the way, do you know what your garment is? How about a robe of righteousness? How about garments of salvation? That's what God intends for His children, for His household. He has clothed me with garments of salvation, Isaiah 61.10. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. It's beautiful. Verse 30, and we get back around. With my mouth, I will give thanks abundantly to the Lord. And in the midst of many, I will praise Him. For he stands at the right hand of the needy to save from those, or to save him from those who judge his soul. So interesting. Notice that it's no longer Satan standing at the right hand to accuse, as back in verse six, but now it's God standing at the right hand to save from accusation. Satan is right there at the right hand, attacking the soul, trying to draw you into a flesh fight. God stands at the right hand to save. So what's my part in all of this? Well, but I pray. But I pray. All the imprecations within this psalm are sandwiched between prayer on the one hand and just one other thing. With my mouth I will give thanks abundantly to the Lord. O God of my praise... Do not be silent. Pray and praise. You pray, you praise, He will hear and He will answer all accusations against you. Pray and praise. Let's do that right now. Father, we bow before You. We recognize here in this amazing psalm, we hear the prayer of the accused. Lord, we see the accusations fly. And we hear, Lord, here at the end, the beautiful response, the praise of the saved. And Jesus, I I just pray that you would give us that perspective. To be a people whose first response to attack is to go to our knees 
And I ask, Lord, that You would draw us into that place of security and peace. Not just emotional peace, not just physically breathing easier because we've prayed, but entering into warfare through prayer and through declaring trust in Your name and thanksgiving to the God who saves. Oh God of our praise, would You be the God of our prayer? That, that our focus in prayer will be upon You. And that You will orchestrate and work in our prayers, Lord. Filling them up with faith. And that our cries, more than to one another, would always, first and foremost, be to You. And I pray, Father, again, for more than just peace in prayer, but I pray, Lord, do not be silent. As we cry out, hear, hear our prayers and, and act, Lord, and respond. And all the things that are said against us, we, we hand to You. And all the negative things in this world, just as, just as David did, just as more wonderfully Jesus did. I mean, Lord Jesus, no wonder You are in prayer every morning, every night, throughout the day. As the accusations flew, You handed them to the Father. Lord, teach us to do the same. And again, I ask, be the God of our praise. And we lift up thanksgiving and as sons and daughters of the house filled with the gladness of praising our Lord and our God and trusting and knowing that You are the shield. You've got it. Father, teach us to be spirit men and spirit women led by the Spirit, worshiping in spirit and truth dealing with things on a spiritual level. Recognizing even now in the flesh that that is the most powerful place we can be. And Lord Jesus, thank You for opening Your heart to us. Even in the accusations and betrayal of Judas. Thank You for showing us how to handle such cruelty. That even in the midst of it, you called him friend. Help us to be like you, Jesus. I guess that's really the prayer, isn't it? Make us like you. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been under fire in the past. So have you. I will probably be under fire in the future. So will you. But the best response... But I pray. And I praise. And let the Lord work. There's one thing that that takes. It takes faith. It takes being trusting children who know that our dad, our father, our Abba, really does know what he's doing. Really does care about us. Really will be a shield for us. Hey, if you've been under fire, can we pray about that tonight? Just come forward. Let's pray. Let's take it to the Lord right now. If you know someone who has been under fire and you want to pray for them, that'd be great too. Or maybe you've been the accuser and you need to repent. And just say, Lord, forgive my contentious spirit and sanctify me. Whatever your need, whatever your situation is, While we sing this song, you can come and bless myself.
Donna or Cheryl or whoever wanders up here, we'll, we'll pray together. Let's stand.